All right, turn your Bibles to Malachi chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 6 through 12. Malachi 3, 6 through 12. It can be found on page 802, 802 in the Pew Bible in front of you. Malachi 3, 6 through 12. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, For you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask now for wisdom and insight into your word. We ask that you might enable us to know you better, know how to rightly apply your word to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. It's been observed that money is a thermometer of the temperature of the heart. Money is a thermometer of the temperature of one's heart. And one's attitude toward money is a window into the heart for God and one's view of God. We see biblical evidences of this with Zacchaeus, with the rich young ruler, Ananias and Sapphira, and Barnabas. One's heart for God and loyalty, loyalty to God is expressed in what we do with our finances. And that's what we see in our text this morning. In, in our passage this morning, we arrive at this fifth dispute in the book of Malachi. He first dealt with God's love for them as the basis for covenant loyalty. We were then, we were then led to the next several disputes, giving expressions of Covenant loyalty, they consisted of honoring God in worship, specifically in relation to the priests, being faithful in marriage, and believing in God's justice. And now, Malachi moves to explaining their lack of giving. Very, very practical. And I just want to say as a preface to this message, that you are a generous people. We have a generous church here. And I want, you, I want to commend you for this, your love for God overflows in a generosity for one another that gladly meets their needs. It meets the needs of our local church, missionaries, those that we pray for, those in the church body, and those in the community. And also, I want to preface this with, with I want to preface this message because anytime a pastor talks about money, especially for a visitor, they might end up thinking, well, that's what they always talk about, is money. They just want your money. And, and I preface this because I sometimes get leery of even talking about money. I've been here six years here this 
next week, six years this next week, I get leery of talking about money and am sensitive to this topic because of the prosperity gospel in which false teachers take advantage of people promising them health or wealth if only they just give them their money. I've seen people burned and hurt by the reality of false teaching on money. So that's a, that's a preface to this text, okay? Here, here's the main idea. Israel is called to return to the Lord by bringing their tithes and offerings to him as they test God's generosity in order that the curse might be removed and all the nations would call them blessed. God calls his people to return to him by giving to God what is rightfully his in order that he might show his generosity and bless his people. And as we look at this fifth dispute, right, we've been walking through this book of Malachi, as we look at this fifth dispute, we see the same pattern, the charge, the question, the response, and the application, the promise for obedience. So first, you can see this in your outline, the charge, return to the Lord. So look with me now at verse 6 and the first part of verse 7. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. The Lord begins by describing and highlighting his unchanging nature and character. He is the God who does not change. He is faithful to his covenant promises. God's unchanging nature, his, his covenant love for his people and his mercy toward them is the reason that they're not consumed. They are not destroyed because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now think about this for a moment. The context for these Israelites is that they're, they're back in the land. The temple has been rebuilt. But where's the promise of this blessing? They're experiencing oppression mistreatment, a lack of prosperity under the rule of a foreign leader. They even asked in the previous section, where's the God of justice? Because in their minds, it seemed like God was delighting in those who do evil. So that's their situation. God reminds them that he is just. His justice will be seen in his future coming. And as he purifies his people and judges those who do not fear him. That's what we saw last week. God's character does not change. And quite frankly, isn't it interesting that Israel's nature doesn't really change either? Verse 7. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Israel has been a people from its earliest days as could be described as unbelieving. As a nation, they were rebellious, by and large, from the very beginning, right? Right after they leave Egypt, what do they do? They worship a golden calf. While in the wilderness, they grumble and complain, and they want to go back to Egypt. And then when they make it to the promised land, they quickly compromise with the nations around them, in the time of the judges, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Then after demanding for a king, they choose one after their own liking. 
Before you know it, Solomon, who ends up becoming king eventually, he falls into sin by having his heart led away, led astray from the Lord by marrying foreign women. The nation is then split into two kingdoms, and the kings just seem to get worse and worse and worse after the days of Solomon. They're exiled, brought back to the land, and here they are. The people of Israel continue to disobey God. This generation, generation of Israelites back in the land reveals that they continue after the sins of their fathers. They have failed to honor God in their worship and offering sacrifices. They have failed to be faithful to their covenant, to the marriage covenant. And so they've continued to weary the Lord. They, they've worn him out in their words and with their actions. But because God does not change, they are not destroyed. Because God does not change, the call to return to him remains. The promise of what that means remains in effect. Even today, because God does not change, the call to return to him, to repent of your sins and turn to Jesus Christ for salvation and the hope of eternal life remains. It's not too late we see here specifically with Israel, it was not too late. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. The charge is given. They are to return to the Lord. This is a call to repentance, to come back to God. Verse 7 gets at the very heart of this book of Malachi. They've been going through the motions of religion. They were giving half-hearted loyalty and service to God. And so they're called out of their spiritual apathy to a renewed covenant loyalty. Return to the Lord and he will return to you. That's what I want to challenge you with this morning. That's what I want us to be challenged by as a people. To, to be a people who constantly turn to the Lord. Who are marked by repentance, faith, and obedience. Now the question here, the question might be, what does it look like? What does it look like to return to the Lord? What does it mean to return to the Lord? And that's what we see in our second point. Malachi gives us a specific, practical way which describes how they are to return to the Lord. So the second point is this. The question and response, Israel has robbed God. So notice the end of verse 7 and verse 8. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. So we see here that they ask, they ask and question how. How are they to return? If someone were to ask you, how are you to return to the Lord? Oh, we might say, pray a prayer. Go to church and get in a Bible study or a small group. And these might be good, legitimate examples of what might happen. But now the Lord deals with money. Because what we do with our money reveals what's in our heart. You want to know what's important to someone? What do they do with their money? The same is generally true of one's time. 
And so how are they to return to the Lord? Through their tithes and offerings. They are robbing God, to which they reply, how? How are we robbing you? They don't see it. They don't, they don't think they've done anything wrong. And yet their failure in bringing the tithes and contributions shows that they have robbed God. It is a robbing of God because it's not theirs in the first place. Everything they have is the Lord's. They're just stewards of what God has given them. And so by withholding the tithe, they're in a sense stealing from God. They are taking what belongs to someone else and using it for their own advantages and purposes. We know in our hearts and minds how this can work. We might be tempted to think along similar lines. We can't afford it. What will it be used for? Will it be put to good use? We have certain significant needs. Will God bless me for it? Is it worth it? Sometimes it seems like it's, it's not worth it. That might be what's going through their minds, the way they're thinking. Remember the context. They were, they were saying and are going to say, it is vain to serve God. Why give God the tithe? What, what benefit does that really have for me and my life? They weren't seeing any of the blessings of being in the land. And they were thinking that the fault was, was not with them, but with God. And so here they are. They're called to return to the Lord because they've been robbing God in their tithes and contributions. Under the old covenant, Israel was required to tithe. Okay, so, so let me explain this. A tithe literally means a tenth. There appears to be several reasons under the law of Moses, several tithes under the law of Moses. One, there was a regular tithe that was given to support the Levites and their service to God and the tabernacle or temple. The Levites then were in turn to tithe the tithe, which would be given to the priests. We see this in Numbers 18. Number two, second, second example we see is a tithe of the seed, fruit, or flocks were to be given to the Lord and then consumed at the annual festival. Leviticus 27, Deuteronomy 12, and 14. And then third, we also see in Deuteronomy 14, 28, and 29 that every three years, tithes were to be made for the Levites, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. So there was a tithe for the Levites, the festival, and the poor. Some have suggested that with these various tithes and contributions, the amount that they were actually required to give was about 23%. 23% of their income. Now, it's important to note that this was tied to how Israel worked as a nation under the Old Covenant. We'll address more of this in a moment. Israel was failing to give back to God what was rightfully his. They were withholding the tithe and thus robbing God. That's the accusation and the response for how they were to return to the Lord. So third and finally, we're going to spend more time on this one. The application. The present curse for disobedience and the promise of future blessing for obedience. Now notice verse 9. You are cursed with a curse for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Israel has been accused of robbing God. And now what we see here is it's, the res it's resulted in the present curse. 
as you know, under the old covenant, there were warnings for curses for disobedience and promises of blessing for obedience. You can read about this in Deuteronomy 28. Let me just read a few verses here so you can see this. Deuteronomy 28, verse 1 and 2 says this, And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. And then he, he outlines several material blessings. Your towns, your fields, your children, your crops, your flocks, your fruit, victory over the enemies. Verse 8, the Lord will command that the blessing on you in your barns and in all that you undertake, and he will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Deuteronomy 28, 12, the Lord will open to you his good treasury, the heavens, to give the rain to your land in its season and to bless all the work of your hands. And then the curses, the curses for disobedience. Deuteronomy 28, 15, but if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Verse 21, the Lord will make the pestilence stick to you until he has consumed you off the land that you are entering to take possession of it. The Lord will strike you with wasting disease and with fever, inflammation and fiery heat and with drought and with blight and with mildew. They shall pursue you until you perish and the heavens over your head shall be bronze and the earth under you shall be Iron. And this is what was happening in the days of Malachi for Israel. God says, you are cursed with a curse. The whole, whole nation of you, Israel. The reason they were not prospering in the land, but experiencing poverty, defeat, was because they were under the curses of the covenant. Because of their disobedience to God. We've seen the different ways throughout Malachi and how this happened. As a result, it affected the entire nation of Israel as a whole. They are under the curse. They were being punished by God because they are robbing God. So God reminds them. He warns them and challenges them to test him in verse, verses 10 through 12. God promises blessings for obedience in verses 10 through 12. Notice verse 10 through 12 again. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there's no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. This is how Israel is to return to the Lord. They're to bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there might be food in God's house. In other words, God's people are not just to give a portion of the tithe, but the whole thing. They were to bring it to the temple, where it could be stored before it was then distributed. Likely so the needs of the Levites and priests could be met. But again, he's highlighting this call to covenant obedience. 
in bringing the tithe to the temple. You recall that the temple was the center of worship. It was the place where God's presence would dwell with his sinful people. The Levites ministered in the temple as appropriate sacrifices were being brought to them to maintain their covenant relationship with God. And so to fail to give of the tithe is to neglect worship. And what was central to the very existence of Israel as a nation. To bring the full tithe to the storehouse would reveal how they value the center of worship. And keeping the temple going and and allowing the priests to continue to carry out their service to God. Bringing the full tithe was a call to worship. To renew their covenant commitments and reshape their life around God. So God demands that they test him. Test him in this. Test his generosity and faithfulness. This might be the only time in the Bible where God tells his people to put him to the test. Right? Usually we read, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Or we read of God testing his people to to reveal what's in their hearts. Or, test me, try me, see if there's any impure way in me and lead me in the way everlasting, right? A prayer. For God to demand that he be tested by his people shows that he will be faithful. He is generous and ready to display blessings upon his people. And that's what, we see, what he promises here. Thereby put me to the test if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there's no more need. I, re- I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. The windows of heaven will open. Rainfall, abundant agricultural produce, will be signs of covenant blessing. They will be blessed beyond measure. No more need. God will overflow them with blessing and give them success. God will prevent pests from devouring the fruit of their land. God will remove the curse that's, that's destroying their land and the crops and the animals. God promises an abundance of blessings and the reversal of the curse. If they don't withhold the tithe, God will not hold back his blessing them beyond measure. Now notice verse 12. Why? Why? Why will God do this? Verse 12. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says Lord Lord of hosts. I I think this is often missed. It's not so they're rich. It's so that the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight. In other words, the promised blessing is so great that the nations will see it. They will see the nation of Israel as a land of delight. In their obedience and in God's blessing of Israel, he is attracting the nations to God that he is the one true God. The nations around Israel were supposed to see Israel. They were supposed to see the abundance in the land and say, yep, that's the one true God. 
Yep, that's the one true God. There must be no other. Israel's obedience in giving to God what was rightfully his had implications for them as a people and as a nation and their relationship with God and for the nations around them. Fascinating. I find this fascinating. Okay. So the question now, how how do we apply this? How do we apply this? Because this is often, this is often a passage is taken completely out of context and used for one's own advantage. How do we apply this? What, do we, what lessons do we learn from this? Okay, so what I want to do now is, is I want to get very practical. I want to talk about tithing. Is tithing a biblical mandate for those in the New Covenant era? Are we required as Christians to give a tenth of our income? Christians disagree on this topic. And I would just add in part that one of the reasons that there is disagreement is tied to how we understand the relationship between the Old and New Testament. In fact, it it could be said that almost every theological debate or difference, okay, almost every theological debate or difference could be tied to how one views their Old Testament in relation to the New Testament. This is what I'm really passionate about, by the way. Whether it's the issue of baptism, what we do on Sunday, end times, the land of Israel, the nation of Israel, you name it, you name it. Tithing could be considered another one of these issues. And obviously, obviously we don't break fellowship over this. We don't break fellowship over this. You might hold a different view than me. Is tithing, so here's the question, is tithing commanded for Christians today? You probably know my answer if you listen. I didn't do the pastoral prayer this morning. But you probably know my answer if you listen to the way I pray in the pastoral prayer. It's intentional. I never use the word tithe, but only offering. You ever notice that? It's intentional. I would suggest to you that the answer is no. Okay? Now you're like, I like this sermon. This is great. Let me give you some arguments from both sides, okay? And then, since I don't, I hold to it not being a requirement, what is, the question that we would ask then is, what is expected of Christians? What is required for us as Christians, okay? And this is when we'll dive into the implications of, of this text has on us as believers in Christ. So, four main reasons why some people hold the tithing being a requirement, okay? So here's four reasons why some think it's required. Number one, Prior to the Old Covenant, people in the Bible were tithing. Two examples. In Genesis 14, after the battle, Abraham gave a tenth of everything he had to Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God. In Genesis 28, Jacob has a dream. He sees a ladder set up on the earth, reaching to heaven, and the Lord stood at the top of the ladder, and God promised to bless him. And then he wakes up from his dream and he makes a vow and promises to God a tenth of what he has. Number two, 
So second reason, Israel under the law was required to tithe. And so as God's people today, we're required, therefore, to do the same, right? So what they're seeing then is, is continuity between God's people, Israel and the church, one and the same, would therefore mandate that we tithe. Number three, in our passage, Israel was threatened with a curse and promised a blessing if they tithed. Number four, in the Gospels, Jesus in the Gospels commends tithing. Listen to what he says to the Pharisees. Matthew 23, 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Solid arguments. So, what would I say in response? What are the reasons why tithing is no longer required for us as Christians? First, we are no longer under the covenant of Moses. Tithing was part of the requirement for those who were under the old covenant. It was tied to the land of Israel as a nation, the temple, the Levites, the priests, who would then carry out the offerings and duties in the temple. And these realities, the sacrificial system, are fulfilled in Jesus Christ and therefore have passed away. Jesus ushered in the new covenant by his blood. So that, this is where there's discontinuity, okay? Discontinuity between the people of God in the Old Testament and the people of God in the New. There's, there is a distinction between Israel and the church. Second, the examples of Abraham and Jacob prior to the Old Covenant, these were not patterns in their life. And they weren't patterns in the life of, of God's people prior to the giving of the law. You just didn't see this. Third, Jesus' example in the New Testament, right? So, oh, now we're in the New Testament, Sean. Jesus' example in the New Testament came before the dawning of the new covenant. He is talking to the Pharisees who are still living under the old covenant. Jesus obeyed the law. He honored the sacrificial system. He didn't come to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them. Which is why it's so important to always ask, always, 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 always ask when you read your Bible, where are we in the storyline? Where? Where are we in the storyline of Scripture? Fourth, you can tell I'm passionate about that point. Context, context, context. Fourth, if tithing is required, what amount are we to give? There's a debate on what the actual amount was. Was it 10%? Was it 20, 23%? Fifth, and probably most importantly, when there would have been ample opportunity to do so, the churches in the New Testament were never told to tithe, but instead they were told to give generously. Here's what we see in the New Testament. In 2 Corinthians 8, Paul commends the generosity 
of the churches of Macedonia. They gave according to their means and beyond their means of their own accord. And then Paul motivates the church of Corinth out of a love for God, out of a knowledge of God's grace extended to you, church in Corinth, in the giving of Jesus himself, who sacrificed himself, he encourages them to generosity. 2 Corinthians 8, 11, and 12. The New Living Translation says it like this. Give in proportion to what you have. Whatever you give is acceptable if you give it eagerly. And give according to what you have, not what you don't have. And then the next, next chapter, 2 Corinthians 9, Paul says in verse 6, the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Now here's what he says. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. Not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you. So that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. And then he describes how there will be an increase in your harvest of righteousness. A harvest of righteousness. So here's how we apply this to our lives today. God has displayed his great grace in giving of his son, who, who gave himself completely, entirely for us and our salvation. We are stewards of God's resources. All that we have belongs to God. Therefore, here's how we apply it. Number one, give, giving should be sacrificial, generous, and with eagerness. The concern is the attitude of the heart of the giver. The attitude of the heart in the giver. God loves a cheerful giver. My former pastor reminded me of what John Wesley once said. Earn all you can. Save all you can. Give all you can. I think that's helpful. That's a helpful word. We should seek to work, to have, in order to give. There is wisdom. Obviously, there's wisdom in planning. There's wisdom in investing for the future. We see this throughout the Bible. And there's a call for us as Christians to not put our hope in the uncertainty of riches, knowing that God will supply our needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. So number one, give sacrificially, generously, and with eagerness. Number two, here's how you apply it. Give as an act of worship. Giving should be an act of worship. Israel's failure to give showed that they weren't concerned about the ongoing worship that was taking place in the temple. It showed that they weren't concerned with the things of God. Number three, our giving should reflect God's purposes in spreading the gospel. In Israel, giving enabled the continuation of the service and temple and the work of the priests. And it was also evangelistic. Had an evangelistic purpose. The nations around them would see that they were a land of delight. And they would say, here's the true and living God. The work of ministry continues through the, through the generosity of believers in the local church. 
in financially supporting a ministry of a local church. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 9, he would even say this, that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. In financially supporting the local church, a local church, you are showing what's important to you, right? Even in the way you give, you actually show what's important to you that it is the spread of the gospel. And then number four, and lastly, give in faith. God wanted his people to test his generosity and faithfulness. See what the Lord might do and how he might bless you. Right? It might not be a one for my one. It might be overflowing with thankfulness or abounding in good work, a harvest of righteousness. Let's continue to see God's generosity and faithfulness to us. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we observe in our own lives that all that we have is yours. And even when we give of our offerings, we are giving what is yours already. We have been stewards of what you've given us. I pray that you would enable us to steward well. I pray that even in our giving, even in our, what we do, that others would, that it would cause the spread of the gospel, it would cause the advancement of the gospel. I pray that we would do our various activities, whether it's giving, as acts of worship. Because what we want to do is we want to be an obedient people. We want to return to you. And so we do pray for that even this morning. And we're reminded this morning of your faithfulness. You are faithful to your people. They were not consumed. You are faithful even to us today. And so I pray that we would sing of your greatness. We would sing of your faithfulness and declare it to those around us. In Jesus' name, amen.